Well, this morning we are continuing our look at the book of 1 Corinthians. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we are looking at verses 17 through 34. If you uh, don't have a Bible, you want to use one of the blue provided ones nearby, I believe that's on page 958. Page 958. And if you're not familiar with looking at a Bible, the big number is the chapter, and the little number next to the words, those are the verses. And as I talk about verses as we go through this, you'll be able to recognize where we are exactly in the passage. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, I will read that, and then we will begin to work through it as a body. Starting in verse 17, this is Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. He says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us, uh, to instruct us, to train us, to lead us into all righteousness. Thank you for the sufficiency of your word, which you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. God, would you pray that as we consider this text, that we would be a church that faithfully considers one another, especially when we gather. God, we pray that our gathering this morning would glorify you, that we would be here not just to see what we could get out of it, but also see how we can encourage and build up our brothers and sisters around us. So to see how we can be a light to those who are not in Christ. God, would you pray for those who are here who may not know you, and we pray that today would be the day that they hear the gospel and receive it with glad hearts. We pray for the city of of Westerville and Columbus, 
that the gospel would go forth and that more and more people would receive it. Lord, thank you for other churches that are proclaiming this gospel. We pray that you would help them to stand faithfully. Lord, we pray for uh, people in the world who have not yet heard this gospel. God, we think specifically of the Ansari people in India. 12.6 million people who you know each individually, and yet 0.0% are proclaimed Christians. Lord, it is a nation that is overrun by the false religion of Islam. And so, God, we pray that you would lead these people into your family. We pray that you would bless the Ansaris in such a way that they will know that you are the one to follow. Give them eyes to see. Give them ears to hear. Give them a hunger for righteousness and holiness so that they may turn their hearts to Jesus, the righteous and holy one. Lord, provide ways for missionaries and for your people to get into the Ansari community so that they can proclaim the gospel to them. And God, we pray that as they scatter seeds, that there would be much fruit. Lord, be with us as we look at this text. We pray that as your word goes forward, that it would not go out void. Thank you for the promise that it doesn't. Let your will be done in our gathering this morning. Be magnified, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So, for the last couple of years, we don't have them anymore, but for the last couple of years, we had tickets to go to Columbus Crew Games. The company that we did our mortgage through gave us season tickets, and so it was, it was great. And I got to be able to take uh, Finley to one of these games, and she just loved it. Now, one of the things that she was immediately curious about when we walked into Lower.com Stadium was that, Dad, which team do we want to win? And as a Columbus Crew fan, I, I told her, hey, we want, we want the team that's wearing the black and gold jerseys to win. That's the one we're rooting for. Now, that team, the Columbus Crew, they didn't become a team that day when they showed up at the stadium. They were a team before that. They had preseason training. They had midweek mid practices. And they, they were a team before game day. But on game day, they all showed up to the same place around the same time. And they proclaimed their unity by doing something. And that something was putting on the same jersey. We could tell just by sitting in the stands who was on what team. Other things surely could have reflected their union as a team. You can see by the way that they play, or you can see by which side of the field that their team is sitting on. But the most obvious sign to find out who was on what team was by what jersey they wore. And in a similar way, Christians come together as a church each week, and they proclaim who they are united to. Now, they're still Christians throughout the week. When they scatter, they are still members of the body of Christ. We wouldn't deny that by any means. But something unique happens when they come together on the Lord's Day, when they assemble, and they get to publicly proclaim their ongoing union with Christ. And that thing that happens, that putting on the jersey, so to speak, is the Lord's Supper. And so this morning, as we look at this text about the Lord's Supper that really gets into the nitty-gritty. It's a text that you've probably, if you've been here for a while, you've heard this text a lot because it's the most common one that we go to for the Lord's Supper when we take it each week. So you've heard this. Maybe not all of the context before and after, but you've heard this passage many times. Now, I'd submit to you that the main point of the, this passage, 17 through 34, is that the Lord's Supper proclaims our commitment 
and union to Christ and to his people. The Lord's Supper proclaims our commitment and union to Christ and to his people. And this whole book of 1 Corinthians, the major theme is union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are all kinds of things that were causing this Corinthian church to be divided. And it was a church that Paul had gone over and he had proclaimed the gospel. People had received the gospel and so a church was birthed. And they were growing and then Paul had written to them to check in. He found out that there's issues going on. And so he starts to address some of these issues in his second letter to them. I know this is called 1 Corinthians, but this is his second letter to them. So I think there's kind of a, a zero Corinthians before this. He addresses unbiblical divisions in the church. where They're following various different people who their preference was. He addresses those who were t- uh, tolerating sexual immorality. Felt like they were being tolerant. And he says, no, you need to address this. This is bringing shame to the name of Christ. He addresses lawsuits within the church. Addresses those who were excusing sexual immorality because it occurred outside of their bodies. Thought that the Lord is only concerned about the soul, about what's inside. And so they said, we can do whatever we want on the outside. Paul says, no. Then he addresses some confusion that there was around marriage and around singleness. And in chapters 8 through 10, he prioritizes, or he he addresses this idea where they were prioritizing their own rights over the body. And so 8 through 10, he's just consistently saying, hey, lay down your rights for the sake of building up the body of Christ. You have rights, yes, but if it comes to laying them down to build up or holding on to them in a way that harms the body, he says lay them down for the sake of building up the body. And then we enter this section of chapters 11 through 14, where the thing that he's addressing is consistently about how we should worship. And so last week we talked about how he wanted to emphasize gender and headship and authority within the public gatherings. That glorifies God. Don't don't mix that. Don't blur those lines. And this week we see when it comes to corporate worship, he's trying to give them direction on the Lord's Supper. And then, Lord willing, in the following weeks we'll look at Uh, spiritual gifts within the church, and then uh, some spiritual gifts that are elevated above the others, and we'll see orderly worship in chapter 14, and we'll continue to to go through that. But chapters 11 through 14, he's talking about the context of the church gathered. And so today, as as we look at the text, Paul breaks up his argument in three ways, and you can see this in your bulletin. If you're keeping notes, here are the fill in the blanks. We see what the Lord's Supper does, what the Lord's Supper proclaims, and what the Lord's Supper requires. What the Lord's Supper does, what it proclaims, and what it requires. So verses 17 through 22, we see what the Lord's Supper does. In verse 17, Paul starts off by saying, I do not commend you. Now, remember, in verse 2, he did commend them. Even though there were some things that they were getting wrong, he said, I commend you, because you're trying to keep the traditions that I delivered to you. Thank you for doing that. Now, in Verse 17, he just comes out of the gate swinging and says, all right, I do not commend you here. So buckle up because I'm about to let you know all the things that you are doing wrong when it comes to the Lord's Supper. He scolds them. He says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. He says, when you come together, it's actually a net loss. It would almost be better if you just never even came together because what you're doing is not for the better, it's for the worse. Their worship gathering was a net loss in God's eyes. And so church, that's a, that's a warning to us. That when we gather, we can't just assume, because we are gathering, that God's pleased. 
Good intentions in worship are not sufficient. We worship God the way he has prescribed for us to worship him. We don't get to make it up as we go. And so, verse 18, Paul gets into the nitty-gritty as to why. He says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe in part. Now, this harkens back kind of to the first four chapters. But these are different divisions now. So, in some context, what was happening was that the Corinthians, when they would gather, there were those who were wealthy, who would have a, a great big feast of a meal, and those who were poor, who didn't have much. And so, even when they gathered, there were divisions. And those two things don't, don't come together well, being together and divided. Uh, Danielle has, has recently picked up, I shouldn't say recently picked up, she used to be into it before, but she's gotten interested in it again, of doing puzzles. And I am not a puzzle guy. So she enjoys doing puzzles, and that's fantastic. I want to encourage her in that. However, I would think it to be a little strange if she said, hey, Robert, come in the room, the puzzle's together. And if I came in, and it was just all the pieces in the box together, but not actually put together. Now, when the Corinthian church was coming together, they were still, even though they were in one place, they were still divided, like that puzzle. But what Paul is saying is, hey, don't just be together in a divided kind of way. Just be united. Let, the, let yourselves be completely unified. Now, Paul, he's not surprised by these factions. You see that in, in verse 19. He even says that this is essentially how you recognize who's genuine. So when it comes to, to counterfeit money, we've said this before, that you can tell something is counterfeit by holding it up next to the real thing. This is a, there, there must be factions among you in order to be able to tell who is genuine. And so then he begins to elaborate as to what was going on, some of the context that I shared just a minute ago, that rather than eating the Lord's Supper, they were eating their own meals. They weren't waiting for one another. They were going on their own time whatever they preferred. They were eating their own big meals. Some would go hungry. Others would get drunk. Some had little. Some had plenty. And Paul is astonished by this. He says, you're coming together, yet you have no concern about the other brothers and sisters that are around you. This does not bring glory to God. This does not reflect the unity that the Lord's Supper is meant to reflect. And in so doing, the poor were humiliated. There was a greater love for self than there was love for the church. And so Paul rebukes them because the Lord's Supper is designed to make many one. It's designed to say that we, as a body, as individual baptized believers brought together, we are one. We are unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Corinthians, when they gathered, they came together but they were still reflecting division when they came together. And so church, we, we just need to be on guard against the various things that may divide us. I, I would imagine that we're not tempted to have a handful of people go out into another room and enjoy some Ruth's Chris, while others may eat crackers. Like, I don't think that's our temptation today, but there are things that could divide us, so that when we actually come together, we are yet still divided. And that kind of division when we come together is not glorifying to the Lord. We must be on guard against the things that Satan would use to divide us. We need to be unified. Not just unified for the sake of unity. We don't do that. But we're unified in the truth. Unified in Christ. Not hobbies or sports teams or music preference or clothing style or 
social status or race or wealth or anything like that. We're unified in the truth, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so do your actions and do your conversations outside of this place, but even, even in this place, do your actions and your conversations promote unity? Or are they sowing seeds of division? But that unity needs to be us promoting unity in Christ. Hear me. I'm not, I'm not saying just unity for the sake of unity. We need to be unified in Christ, in the truth. Bobby Jameson, who has written on this, he actually has, has a good book back there called Understanding the Lord's Supper. I'd highly recommend it to you. But he puts it this way. He says, in a very significant sense, the Lord's Supper is the moment when a group of Christians becomes one body. The Lord's Supper makes many one. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10, 17. If you just flip back one page there, likely one page, depending on your Bible. But we read, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the Lord's Supper is meant to make many one. That's what it does. And now we get to see what the Lord's Supper proclaims. And this is the passage that we, we hear most weeks right before we do participate in the Lord's Supper. But let's take a closer look at it. So looking at verses 23 through 25, we see that the Lord's Supper, it wasn't Paul's idea. All right, he's saying, I delivered to you. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So what he delivered to them is something that he received from the Lord. And so we see the Lord instituting the Lord's Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We don't see it in, in John, but we see it in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And now this is instituted, here's some context here, this is instituted during the Passover meal. It was the, the night before the day of preparation. And what would happen was that there would be elements that would be um, in this meal to remind them of the exodus that God provided, bringing them out of slavery, out of bondage from the Egyptians years and years ago. And so these elements... Uh, were prescribed earlier. If you look at Exodus 12, we see some of these. But we see unleavened bread. And we also see wine. Now, the, these, the wine they had, there would be four cups. And each cup would represent one of the four promises that God had promised to his people. We see this in Exodus 6. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7. And God says to his people, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. There's promise one. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and I will take you to be my people. There's these four promises. I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and I will take you to be my people. Now, Jesus, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, we see that he institutes it after the meal. And so what would happen is the first two cups of wine would be drank during the meal, and then after the meal, the third cup, would, would, would be drank. And so it says, after the meal, Jesus held up the cup. So this is likely the third cup. We don't know if it's the third or fourth. Commentators are more so inclined toward it being the third because what it signifies is that the meal is not yet done. Because he says that I will not participate, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I do so with you in my kingdom. So there's almost a, a, a foreshadowing of this meal is not done. So whether you think it's the third or fourth, that's beside the point, but fun fact that it seems like the meal is not yet finished. Now, 
in this meal, there's great symbolism that takes place. So the unleavened bread, where Jesus says, this is my body, unleavened bread was to signify cleanliness. And so the way that uh, bread was used, they would take a little bit of leaven from the previous loaf and take it out of that loaf, and then they'd make their new loaf. So that leaven was from the previous loaf, and they'd just keep doing that to continue to make bread that was leavened. And so unleavened bread means there's no bread from the previous, no bread from the past. It's a clean slate. It's a new start. So the unleavened bread would signify cleanliness. But even with bread, the unleavened side of it represents cleanliness. Bread nourishes our bodies. And in the same way that bread nourishes our physical bodies, Christ nourishes our spiritual. He builds us up. He makes us stronger in the way that food does. So there's, there's great symbolism there. But when it comes to the wine, Jesus' blood, wine was a fruit of the vine. And Jesus himself says that we cannot produce any fruit unless we are attached to him, the true vine. We see this in John 15. Wine is also beneficial for physical health. See this in 1 Timothy 5. And Christ's blood provides spiritual health. Wine is bitter in taste. You can't just easily gulp it down. Just as the cup of God's wrath is not easily drank. Wine makes the hearts of men glad. We see this in Psalm 104. And the remission of sin should make the hearts of Christians very glad. Exceedingly glad. John Owen in his book, Communion with God, puts it this way. He says, wine that cheers the heart, wine that cheers the heart of man, that makes him forget his misery, that gives him a cheerful appearance in that which is promised, that grace is shown by Christ in his ordinances, and it is refreshing. It's strengthening and full of comfort to the souls of the saints. In this way, Christ makes all his assemblies banqueting houses. There he gives his saints rich entertainment. When we gather to participate in Lord's Supper, we are a banqueting house. We are remembering what Christ has done. As we participate in the bread and as we participate in the wine or the juice, you are remembering what Christ has done. And just as those elements feed your physical body, they should feed your soul to remind you of what he has done. Now, there are two things that need to be addressed here. Two things that the Lord's Supper is not. So first, this is not... Jesus' literal body. Our Roman Catholic friends would disagree, and we would just say, you're wrong. I'll get into why. So that, that, that side is, or that position is called transubstantiation. So trans is short for transformation, so the substance is being transformed. That's what they'd say. And first off, we would just say that there, there's no biblical evidence for that. They'd say, well, Jesus says, this is my body, and this is my blood. And we'd say, he also says, I am the door. And we don't think that he's actually made of wood. He says, I am the true vine, and he's not sprouting leaves out of them. Nobody, nobody disagrees with that. So he's using figurative language here, symbolic language. So this is not Jesus' literal body. Also, number two, this is not a re-sacrificing of Christ. Again, Roman Catholic understanding. And again, no biblical evidence for that. So that, that's where we need to start, is that we need to be driven by the text. So there's not sufficient evidence to say that this is a re-sacrificing of Christ. Further, Christ on the cross said, it is finished. There are no more sacrifices necessary. Not it has begun. Not 
this process of forgiveness has now been established. He says it's finished. There's no more sacrifices necessary. And the supper is a remembering of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Once for all time. So, we need to look at what is the Lord's Supper. We just listed two things that it's not. It's not Christ's literal body. It's not a re-sacrificing of Christ. So what is it? Well, the Lord's Supper is a new covenant sign given to the church to identify Christians. It's given to the assembly to identify those who are in Christ. And so it's a church's act of collectively communing with Christ and communing with each other. It's church's act of collectively commemorating Christ's death, remembering what he does for us. And then further, we don't want to forget this one, it's the church's act of collectively anticipating Christ's return. See in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we are trusting that Christ is coming back. We are trusting that his death is sufficient for us to be united to him. That's what the Lord's Supper is for the church. Now, for the individual, for the believer, it's a public proclamation that he or she is resting on Christ's work, on his body and his blood for the removal of sin and for the imputing of his righteousness. Again, we see that in verse 26, we're proclaiming his death. It's not just to say he died. It's to say we're trusting in what he did for us. It's also a believer's act of renewing his or her commitment to Christ and to his people. And so baptism is that initial sign, uh, that sign that you, when you first uh, become a Christian, the first step of obedience is to be baptized, and that unites you to the church. And you're saying, I am in Christ. It's a one-time thing. And then the ongoing renewal sign is the Lord's Supper. And so if you think of it as a family meal, we've said this often before, but you think of it as a family meal where we participate in the supper together, baptism is the seat at the table. And then if you consider what baptism signifies, it signifies that we are living a lifestyle that is consistent with that of a Christian. We are continuing to repent. We're continuing to trust in Christ's death for the remission of Sin. And if we begin to show evidence that we're not trusting in that, if we begin to embrace sin without turning away from it, and the individual has come up to us and said, hey, you need to repent, we say no. And then two or three others, this is Matthew 18, two or three others come and, and continue to say, no, I'm not going to repent. And then the church comes and tells you, then what they do is they excommunion you. They excommunicate you. They say, hey, you, you should not participate in the sign that says you are a follower of Jesus because it seems like you have more affinity toward this sin than you do toward the Savior. Again, highly recommend uh, that book recommendation in the back, Understanding the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper, what it proclaims is the gospel. The sign that proclaims the good news that Christ has given himself so that anyone who would repent and believe on him would have their sin removed and have his righteousness given to them. And so Christian, do you take the Lord's Supper as seriously as the scriptures do? As seriously as we're told to? Don't just go through the motions each week when we do this. This is you proclaiming continued commitment and union with Christ and his people. 
as a non-Christian sitting in here, thank you for being here. You're, you're always welcome. We hope you continue to come. But you might be wondering, what is the big deal about a little piece of bread and some juice or some wine? Now, to clarify, participating in the Lord's Supper, it does not save you. So we would not say that if you missed it, if you weren't there, then you're now under condemnation. And we would also not say that if you participate in it, then all your sins are removed. We'd say that it's a sign to remember what Christ has done. And if you are entrusting Christ for those things, then you should take the sign that you are, in fact, in Christ. So it doesn't save. However, we take it seriously because it is commanded. The Lord Jesus commanded it, commanded that we do it. And so again, back to earlier, that first point, we, we can't just decide what it is that we want to do on our own will and volition. We worship the Lord the way that he has prescribed us to worship him. He has commanded that we do this, this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And so that leads us to our third point. What the Lord's Supper requires. Now, verses 27 through 29, if you look at me there, reads this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. So, the Lord's Supper requires us to examine ourselves, to ensure that we're not participating in an unworthy manner. And so, the automatic follow-up question is, what is an unworthy manner? So, if it requires us to examine ourselves to ensure that we're not participating in an unworthy manner, what is an unworthy manner? So I would submit to you two things that an unworthy manner is. So the first one is participating as a non-Christian. Again, we, we've said it earlier, say it again, that this is for those who are entrusting themselves entirely to Christ. These, those who are depending on what he has done for the remission of sin and for his righteousness being given over to them. And so to eat and to drink is to proclaim the Lord's death. And so if you are not proclaiming Christ's substitutionary death for your salvation, if you are not trusting in his promised return, then you're still dead in sin. And if you're dead in sin, you should not participate in the supper that proclaims, I've been made alive because of Christ's broken body and his shed blood. So if you're a non-Christian and you're here, you actually have a responsibility. You have a job responsibility in our gathering today. And that responsibility is to not participate in the Lord's Supper. It's to abstain. And I would encourage you to instead consider taking Christ. I'll plead with you as we go throughout the remainder of the sermon and as we participate in the Lord's Supper to consider taking Christ. But the second way that we can participate in an unworthy manner is to participate without discerning the body. You see that in verse 29. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So that word discern, the Dictionary of Biblical Languages points out that it is to evaluate carefully, to make a distinction. And so when we discern, when we evaluate carefully, when we make distinction, make a distinction of the body, Paul's referring to the local church. We see that because in the chapter previous, chapter 10, the use of body is referring to the local church. And then later in chapter 12, the very next uh, chapter, it's the same thing, that use of body is referring to the local church, and so it makes sense that you're right in the middle where he's using that, is referring to the local church. And so we are to make distinctions within the local church, but we're supposed to do it rightly. 
Gregory Wills puts it this way when he talks about the Corinthians and their failure here at the Lord's Supper. He says their failure was a failure of discipline, a failure to judge the body. In any case, there is a direct connection between the Corinthian church's toleration of sinful behavior and God's judgment upon them. We see this supported in verse 31, if you look down there. It says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And so our responsibility to participate in a worthy manner is to examine ourselves individually to ensure that we are Christians, we are entrusting ourselves to Christ. But then secondly, to evaluate and to make right distinctions within the body. If we are tolerating sin and not ever participating in church discipline, and we're just welcoming anyone and everyone to come take the sign, then we as a church are doing the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We are called to make distinctions. If a brother or sister is in unrepentant sin, we are called to approach them. And if they continue in their unrepentance, then we need to say, hey, brother, sister, until you repent, we recommend you do not participate in the Lord's Supper because it's proclaiming that you are a Christian, that you are forsaking your sin and following Christ. And you don't seem to be right now forsaking your sin. So don't participate. And so we need to examine ourselves individually and we need to discern the body, the local church. And the Corinthians were not doing this. We see this in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So literally, the Lord has tried to shake them to get their attention. Say, you're doing this wrong, and I want to get your attention. So Paul writes to them saying, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. Brothers and sisters, look, unrepentant sin has more than just spiritual ramifications. It bleeds out into the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that if you're sick, it's automatically because of unrepentant sin. But it's something worth considering. Is the Lord trying to get my attention? Is he disciplining me? The Lord will do what is necessary to get your attention, and that is his kindness. It's him being a good father, a loving father. The Lord's grace is all over this passage. You see that he's disciplining the Corinthians. Hebrews 12 Verse 6 tells us that for the Lord disciplines, he disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, parents, you can, you can relate to this. You discipline your kids not because you enjoy disciplining them, not because it's your favorite hobby, but because you love your children. You want them to act righteously. You want them to act a certain way because it's for their good. The Lord does the same for us. And despite all of the Corinthian church's issues, despite all of the areas, I mean, we, I listed that list at the beginning, all the issues that they had. And there's more that we're going to get into. We're not done with the book. There's more. Despite all their issues, the Lord didn't turn his back on them. He disciplined them to bring them back. He loved them. Why? Verse 32. So that they may not be condemned along with the world. He did this so that they might repent. He allowed them to get sick and weak and ill and some of them to even die so that they might repent. And that's just the gospel story. Apart from God's intervention, repentance doesn't take place. And so Christian, we have no grounds to boast. We have no grounds to say we were smarter or we understood and and those who aren't Christians, they're just not smart. We, We have no grounds for boasting. God intervened and then that led to repentance. If you would like, you could read that uh, portion of our statement of faith that we read before the sermon, where it gets at this. But God's intervention is what leads 
to repentance. So we have no grounds for boasting. And church, this is one of the reasons why we do exercise church discipline. Because we love the members. The Lord's prescribed it, yes, and so we want to do it at, for the very least because of that, but also because we love one another. And if someone is going off, headed towards destruction, we want to do everything we can to call that person back. Then verses 33 through 34, Paul concludes with a final exhortation for unity. He says, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. The Lord's Supper was meant to be taken together as a church. That phrase, when you come together, is used five times throughout this passage. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. The Lord's Supper is designed for us when we come together. It's not in the community group, not in men's breakfast, not women's Bible study or mission trips or summer camp or with your friends. It's when the church comes together. That's when the Lord's Supper is designed to take place. And when does that happen? Every week. First day of the week, the Lord's Day. We see this in the early church. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered. Why were they gathered? When we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them. So see, they committed themselves to gathering together. And the purpose that they were gathering together was to break bread, to participate in the Lord's Supper, and to hear teaching. Paul talked with them. So may we be like the early church, who devoted themselves to this. You see it in Acts 2 as well, Acts 2, verse 42, where we read about the early church and how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So we as a church want to be devoted to fellowship, to gathering together. We want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to faithful teaching out of God's word. We want to be devoted to the breaking of bread. It's just a way of saying the Lord's Supper. We're devoted to prayers. That's why we have intentional prayers throughout the service. These are things we want to be devoted for. And so faithful participation in the Lord's Supper requires individual examination. Am I a Christian? And church-wide discernment is our church making clear distinctions about who the supper is for. Or are we just welcoming anyone and everyone to participate? And if we're doing it that way, then we're actually doing it in a way that is not prescribed. John Flavel has a great quote on the Lord's Supper. He says, The Lord's Supper is memorative, and so it has the nature and use of a pledge or token of love left by a dying to a, to a dear surviving friend. It is like a ring plucked off from Christ's finger, or a bracelet from his arm, or rather his picture from his breast delivered to us with such words as these. As oft as you look on this, remember me. Let this help to keep me alive in your remembrance when I am gone and out of sight. The Corinthian church, even when they were together, they were divided. And so church, let us, rather than being like a disjointed puzzle in a box, let us be a magnificent image of the unified body of Christ each and every time we gather as a church. The Lord's Supper proclaims our commitment and our union to Christ and to his people. And look, no other meal satisfies. No other meal leaves you satisfied and not needing continued food. But Christ promises 
that anyone who drinks of him will not thirst again. There is a promise that when this life is done, we're in the presence of the Lord. We will not need ongoing nourishment from physical things. We will be sustained by the Lord for all eternity. The world offers all kinds of other forms of satisfaction. And they might satisfy for a season, but they don't satisfy eternally. And so we constantly look for the next thing. We were made for a relationship with God, and only Christ can bring us back into that relationship. Sin keeps us from it. But Christ, in his body, lived a perfect life. And he took on the sin of all those who would repent and believe on him. So that if you would do that, if you would call on him, then he will pay for your sin entirely. But it doesn't stop there. He also gives you his righteousness so you can, be, so you can enter into the presence of a holy and righteous God. He takes our sin, past, present, and future, and covers them with his blood. So rest entirely on the bread of life and be forever satisfied. Confess verse 3 of Rock of Ages, which we, we just sang. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, Look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Can you confess that today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sign of the new covenant. Lord, so much could be said. But we thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for his work on the cross. And God, we pray that as we gather, that we would be united. We pray that as we participate in the Lord's Supper, that we would do it in a worthy way, discerning ourselves as individuals and ourselves as a church. And God, we pray that we would not take these things lightly. You are kind to remind us of what you have done. We thank you for that. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. And so...